Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with fantasy author Justin Travis Call. Justin graduated from Harvard University in 2012 with a master's in literature and creative writing. He has studied fantasy literature for almost two decades and is the author of Master of Sorrows. That's book one of the Silent Gods Tetralogy. Justin is also the CEO of Broomstick Monkey Games and co-designer of the games Imperial Harvest, Royal Strawberries, Royal Scum, and Eight Kingdoms. He currently lives in Park City, Utah with his wife, his two sons, his Great Dane Pippa, and his St. Bernard Mastiff, Herbie. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Justin Call. Ahoy, ahoy. Good to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know it's been a, a, I don't know what a, a couple of months in the making. I guess uh, you were one of the first ones yeah. I reached out to, and I decided to do this podcast. So it's it's I'm nice that the day's finally here. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be here. I know there've been a lot of other really great authors on the podcast. There's going to be some really great ones after me. So it's good to be in good company. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, it, it's it's pretty great that you came on. I actually just uh, just talked to Luke Arnold, who wrote The Last Mile in Sunder City. Uh, which I actually just posted a review of today, and uh, we're going to try to get him in on in March. So uh, I thought awesome. that was that was pretty awesome. And if he, anybody doesn't know who that is <laughs> that I'm talking on the podcast, he uh, was Long John Silver and Black Sails on Stars. So uh, I thought oh. that was that was pretty neat. But yeah, his debut comes out the same day your book comes out. So oh really? Uh, the 25th? Yeah, the 25th. So uh, so his is coming from Crazy. Orbit, and uh, you know yours of course is coming from Blackstone uh, here in the U.S. So. Um, but yeah, so did you have a pretty good day today? Yeah, yeah, I had a great day today. Got some, I uh, got an article finished for Locust Magazine that I was writing, and uh, and this evening I was looking at some houses in the area that we're we're renting right now in Park City. We're looking at buying a home out here, so it was a good day. Good, good. How's the how's the housing market up there? You know, things are always. I always like to spend less than I have to for anything, whether it's a sandwich or a house. And so it, uh, I think out here in Park City, people love their skiing. They love their weekend cabins and all that stuff. And that drives the prices up a bit. And I just like living out here. I like being – the isolation for a writer is really attractive. Right. And since you, know, you can live anywhere, it's why not live in a place that makes you enjoy your, uh, your surroundings? Right, right. I got you. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I've been doing residential real estate for a few years now, and it's just always interesting to see how the market kind of fluctuates. And I feel, I feel like probably the past year it's just been kind of stagnant, uh, at least down here in Alabama. Um, I feel like people are just kind of more renting now, and you, you, you can start yeah. to get the millennial generation in, and they're they're not about buying homes and staying put too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and we were kind of in that that situation as well. We actually bought a home for a while and then we switched to renting just because housing prices were high and we weren't sure where we wanted to live, but we're going to switch back. We, we like our equity in our house. So Yeah, I gotcha. So so have you lived in Utah your whole life? No. Um, okay. I've only lived in Utah. Well, let's see. I was born in Southern California. I lived there until I was about six. So that covers my Freudian years. And then Utah, that was from six to 10. And then I moved up to Oregon, which is really where I consider my childhood being occurring. 
Uh, so I lived there from 10 to 18, uh, went to Chile, served a mission for two years for my church. And when I got back, went to school in Idaho for a couple of years, went out to Boston to work at Harvard. And that's when I got my master's degree there as well. And I was there for about eight years, married my wife, started a family. And then when we moved back out West, we were in Las Vegas and Idaho for couple years trying to figure out where we we wanted to land and we ended up back in utah um and thankfully we ended up on the the wasatch back on the other side of the mountains most people end up in the valley which is where i grew up um, when i was young between six and ten and that's fine but i didn't really enjoy it that much and i don't i don't even like driving on the highway down in the valley that much out here in the back of the mountains it's just so much nicer so it's been good I got to see so you, you kind of landed back where, uh, you know, some of the, some of the greats in fantasy today are going to work, you know, where Sanderson and Brian. Yeah. McClellan. You know, <laughs> there's definitely a perk there. I yeah. think, <laughs> um, I feel like I've kind of hit, I mean, there, there's some good writers in Portland, Oregon, um, in that the Northwest, uh, in the Northeast as well in new England and Boston. And ironically, we've got some, we've got people like Brandon right here in the Valley and, and he's, uh, not too far away, just about an hour away, I think. So, yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, I know he's been, uh, yeah, I, I watched, I guess, a little bit of a video of him teaching a class at BYU. Um, yep. Does he, does he like teach that every year or is that just something um, that he's doing this year? Do you know? He, he typically, from my understanding, um, he usually, he's like a guest lecturer that teaches one class per semester. And occasionally, I think, he takes semesters off. Um, but yeah, typically I think at least two classes a year, he teaches at Brigham Young university in Provo for their literature program for creative writing and Mm -hmm. fantasy, obviously specifically. And I've watched most of his courses online through YouTube because, um, I don't think he actually started teaching there until after I graduated, um, uh, from my undergraduate, mm-hmm. uh, which I, I went to Brigham Young University in Idaho. So okay. uh, I, I didn't go to the one in Utah. I gotcha. Okay. I mean, I, obviously I don't want to like start talking about Sanderson the whole time. I was just, I, I just kind of found that fascinating. I love Sanderson. <laughs> he's a, he's a role model for me. I mean, he's prolific. He's a, he's a fantastic epic fantasy writer. Um, very skilled, very adept at what he does. I definitely know where we diverge in our skill sets and our preferences for writing, but I feel like there's a lot of overlap between what I do and what he does. Well, there you go. For everybody listening, if you, if you like Sanderson, you're more than likely going to like call. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> I think so. There you go. So, uh, so you, you, Tell me a little bit about moving around and so forth, but tell me, I guess, about growing up, going to school, uh, kind of how you got into writing uh, and kind of what influenced you to start writing. Yeah. You know, my earliest memories of writing are, I think I was in kindergarten, I was like five, and our teacher asked us to write a story for a class. I don't even know the details of how that came to be, but I do know that I dictated the story to my mother who typed it up and then for whatever reason on a lark, my grandfather got some hard copies printed because I illustrated the book 
and it was like eight pages or something. Um, and ironically, the story kind of holds up. I, I've gone back and I've got, I still got one of the copies called trick, the good, bad Turkey. It's got some interesting <laughs> themes in it for a five-year-old, um, that I respect as an older <laughs> writer. And, uh, that I think kind of set a precedent that made me feel like I could tell stories and I was good at telling stories, but I didn't really, um, actively pursue that, um, at all, even through my teens, um, or preteens, even though I was like kind of writing stories on the side on accident, just for fun, I didn't realize like, that's what writers kind of start to do. I was just having fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, but by the time I got to high school, I kind of got it into my head that I was going to write some books again, not as a career, but just cause I really wanted to write books. Um, and I'd been playing a lot of Dungeons and Dragons and I'd started reading fantasy at the library, which I'd sort of fallen into on my own. Nobody had introduced me to it. And so it, I, I don't know, it was all kind of serendipitous. Maybe, um, if I'd had a mentor, things would have gone faster in certain areas, but I've kind of fallen into everything on my own self-taught myself a lot of things found books in the library read those both on writing and actual fantasy novels um and i cut my teeth on david eddings for example mm -hmm. and that was my first exposure to real fantasy literature and i loved it um and i i just stuck with it i guess um and when i was in college i had a little bit of a, a revelation, I guess you could say, as far as what I should do with my professional career. And I decided I would either be a teacher, a screenwriter, or a novelist. And I kind of studied all of those things a bit and did all of those things to a certain extent. I actually still teach online classes to kids in China right now, uh, just a couple hours every morning before I write. And yeah, uh, I've studied the English language a lot. I really like words and word origins and uh, myths, folklore. I mean, all of these things I, I've dabbled in throughout my entire life, not thinking they were weird in any way. Mm -hmm. And they've just kind of helped me understand how to write and tell stories. And then as I went through college, and especially when I attended Harvard, I, I kind of fine-tuned that and I started looking for um, any kind of class that would help me tell epic fantasy better, like philosophy, religion, sociology, psychology, criminology, anything that would teach me more about how people think, how societies work or don't work uh, historically and in modern day. And I, old English, Celtic folklore and mythology, like all that stuff, I just ate it up. Um, kind of feeling like at some point it would become useful for me. Like I, like you mentioned earlier, I studied literature and creative writing at Harvard. And by that point, I kind of had decided maybe screenwriting thing, maybe I would do that because I had written some screenplays and had some people uh, sign some contracts for some of those and option them. But I knew in my heart I eventually was going to be doing the, the fantasy series. Okay. And, and that's what I – in fact, Master of Sorrows was uh, – originally written as the thesis at Harvard for my master's program. Okay. Okay. That's, a, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you were talking about uh, teaching in the mornings to, to kids in China. So uh, we've actually got uh, a, a friend of ours that does that. She's got a, 
just a three-year-old son. So she's been doing it for about three or four years now. Yeah, and, I've been uh, out for three years too. Okay, yeah, and I've been I've been talking to my wife about it because she teaches first grade, and uh, and we're about to have a little girl in June, and she's trying to decide if she wants to continue teaching first grade or do something else. I'm like, well, you could always do that. But yeah. she, uh, I think she enjoys her sleep too much, and she likes sleeping <laughs> when it's dark and not when it's light out. <laughs> so, but uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense because you're, you know, you're asleep when they're asleep, and you're awake probably right before they get awake. So, yeah, but yeah. Uh, that's kind of neat. And, and I have to ask, so, so tell me a little bit about your time at Harvard, because you know uh, we're always kind of on the outside looking in when it comes to to, to those type, you know, higher learning. Uh, sure. universities and and all, all, only thing I can think about is uh is is I just think about um the, the character on the office uh that went to Cornell yeah <laughs> and that's that's yeah. like all I picture is like you know uh just just singing and just always wearing the colors and telling everybody you went there <laughs> yeah and you know it's it's interesting especially Boston um, people are so patriotic in Boston I I don't I don't really follow sports at all but just living in Boston for eight years made me want to support like the Patriots and the, the Bruins and like all, all of the yeah. different sports teams because everybody else is so excited by it. You right. kind of feel inspired by their enthusiasm and it's the same way at Harvard, but there's, there's substance there. Like the professors are really good. The, the people that you associate with, whether as a staff member or as a student, the quality is really high and, it's not like you don't find high quality people anywhere else in the world. You right. do all the time. Right. But at Harvard, the ratio is so much higher that it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's utopian. There's definitely some dystopian things at Harvard too. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a weird experience. Cause you know, like, like JK Rowling, for example, a lot of her inspirations for Harry Potter came from Harvard and Oxford and these old, universities that have houses and and a specific traditional way of doing things and and when you're there and you're experiencing that it's it's kind of a surreal experience the whole time i was at harvard both as an employee and as a student it was a surreal experience i got you and nowhere more surreal than when i well originally when i got my first job at harvard i was sorting pens ordering office supplies sorting mail covering reception desk for um the alumni office and i did that for about three years and i leveraged that experience to get a job in the president's office um working behind the reception desk and then eventually doing a lot of mail correspondence there and so i i wrote letters on behalf of the president of harvard for a couple years um emails mostly and (laughs) got to meet a lot of all the people that came through the lobby came through me and all the phone calls from people, crazy people or letters, whatever they came through me. So all of that kind of getting filtered through me and passing it on to all these other people were very important. Um, I was never um, starstruck by any of that Mm because I'm pretty down to earth person, but it was very educational. I got to observe all of these different people, um, different walks of life, different opinions, different levels of expertise and talk to them about stuff um, in their couple minutes before they went to go meet with, you know, the administrators at Harvard. And it was a really cool experience. I gotcha. So did you, did you do all this in a cloak? Sorry, you were talking about JK Rowling. So I just had to ask. <laughs> uh, no, but um, you know, if you go to Harvard, 
at any time of year, the craziest time to go is during commencement because you're going to see all these people dressed up like, uh, you know, like they're in a Harry Potter film because they got their, (laughs) you know, their magisterial robes and their cloaks, which is this, it's, that's the same for any universe. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But when you transport those people to a Harvard campus, it takes on a whole new level of, um, absurdism. Right. It's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And you just kind of expect the Quidditch game to, to, to pop out. <laughs> oh, 100%, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I guess you kind of got lucky too. Cause, uh, you know, Yale, uh, or sorry, Harvard wasn't uh, a part of that whole college bribery scheme. <laughs> so I guess no. you didn't get to see any of that during that whole ordeal with you know, that Yale and Youngstown and all those were, were facing with all the TV stars paying for their kids. Yeah, that's a huge scandal. Uh, probably <laughs> tops any scandals I saw when I was there. But, you know, there's always something, some complaint, some professor who's doing something he shouldn't or some group of students who are upset by X topic. And oh, yeah. um, that's that's always going to be there. Oh, yeah. um, fortunately, the president that was there when I was there, Drew Gilpin Faust, she was a pretty good um, – she didn't cause much kerfuffle, I think. She was a pretty <laughs> good president, so – I like, I like your word quiet. usage, kerfuffle. You don't hear that that word enough. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you're going to sneak that into some of your books. <laughs> if, if I can, if it's appropriate. Okay. okay. Uh, so you, you said that uh, David Eddings was kind of one of the first, uh, I guess, writers that you started reading. Uh, it, would you say he's your main influence, or do you have a few that uh, that you would say are kind of the, the highlights of your reading career before you started writing? Yeah, you know, it's probably in the top two. Um, the other one being Brandon Sanderson, and and that's somewhat awkward to say for two reasons. One, because on the one hand, Brandon is a contemporary uh, of me, and he's only a couple years older than me. Um, and like I said, we have a lot of overlap. We even belong to the same church and live in the same geographic area. And it's kind of weird to to look up to him in that way. Um, but I'm realistic enough to know that he's so prolific and gets so much done. It's not like even if I'm a successful author, whether now or 10 years from now, we're never going to be like best friends or anything like that. Uh, but I really respect his writing, um, his process. I love his books, of course, but just like as a creative writer, he is a fantastic example of how to do things well and professionally. And, and I really respect and admire that. I always have, uh, far before even when he became famous, like, uh, I started reading his books before anybody knew who he was. And so that kind of makes him a little bit more special for me. And yet, because he's my contemporary, it's kind of weird to say that. So I can never really talk to him about that in person. It was just kind of like, hey, Brandon. <laughs> uh, I've met him a couple times. Um, but David Eddings, on the other hand, who's the other person I kind of look up to, I really love his um, his Sparhawk series, his Belgrath series, which are both like, I know the Belgrath series is Belgariad and the Melorian, and they're both quintets. And the Sparhawk series is the Elenium and the Tamuli, and they're both trilogies. But um, you know, some of his stuff isn't that good, and even the stuff that is good, eh, there are complaints against him. Um, eh, some people say his characters are two-dimensional, or he writes towards a younger audience, and today his stuff would be classified as YA fantasy. And I think that's true, frankly, for a lot of authors who write epic fantasy, like like Brandon Sanderson, for example. Um, his fiction in epic fantasy, it appeals to YA and adult audiences, I think, mm-hmm. very easily. Yeah. And I try to write towards that audience as well. My stuff is very crossover-oriented, new mm-hmm. adult, 
young adult, adult. Um, but I try to take the strengths of all the authors that I admire and emulate those strengths as much as I can. And I acknowledge any differences that we might have or um, weaknesses that they may have and uh, try not to replicate those. <laughs> yeah. Um, Patrick Rothfuss is another person who I absolutely adore. And, you know, he can be a very divisive person, both when you meet him in person, because he's kind of a, a uh, he's kind of not as sociable as Brandon, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't get his books out as quickly either. And a lot of people give him guff for that. Same thing with George R.R. R. Martin. But you know, his prose style is so beautiful. And the way he writes his stories, some people love it. They just mm-hmm. absolutely love that slow burn and kind of building up things and it's almost episodic and then, but it all kind of fits together like a nice puzzle. And I really like that style Yeah. and I try to emulate it in my own writing, but some people don't like that style yeah. and that's okay. You know, but yeah, those are the people that see, I really respect. And I can kind of see what you mean by the whole, like it appeals to, to the younger and the older audience. Cause you know, usually it's more of like a coming of age story and some of yeah. the, some of the people that kind of grew up with that, you know, in, in fantasy in the you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, however old, you know, you want to go or how far back you want to go. But yeah, yep. usually that coming of age thing can, can kind of get both audience because because you get the younger people that see them as a younger character and see them as they grow. And then, when, you know, once you're older, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember this, you know, I used to read this kind of stuff back then. And, you know, it, it, it's nice seeing that it's still around and going, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and I, I feel like, I feel like it's starting into a point where people are having a tough time finding the difference between YA and normal fantasy now. Um, they're, they're, I think they're focusing on having young characters and automatically calling it YA, which is just not true. true. Um, and, and I don't know exactly where that comes from, but you know, it, especially like around, I don't know, like the, like Pierce Brown's red rising series, like, a lot yeah. of people say it's YA, but like it gets super adult, like within like a book or two. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, the, the first book starts out kind of YA, but it's just because it's a younger character, you know, Darrow's a younger character in the book and it kind of shows him growing up a little bit, but like, and then, you know, you have this whole like hunger games ish Ender's yeah. game kind of feel, but then like book two, is just death. <laughs> and it's like, okay, this is, this is kind of dark for a younger audience and it's definitely getting more adult. Right. And then with his latest release, dark age, I mean, it's like pitch black dark. <laughs> yeah. No, I've heard, uh, I haven't read that one. Um, but I've heard that a hundred percent. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, we're, we're, what's, what do you do in that situation? Cause at the one time on marketing wise, the publishing industry doesn't really know how to handle books that are like that, that could be branded as YA, but the material clearly isn't, or vice versa. If it's right. an adult fantasy novel but it has YA elements, they the term new adult really hasn't applied to fantasy more to to romance novels, if anything. And even right. that, the term isn't hasn't really stuck that well. So yeah. um, they they need a label to put on these things, and unfortunately, sometimes a label just doesn't work that well, especially yeah. with with Pierce Brown's books, um, it, it really is adult fantasy, but he's using younger characters. Mm-hmm. And if you get into the series early and you're thinking, oh, this is YA, and then you get into those darker, uh, grimdark themes, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, then you're, <laughs> you might uh, have to, it, it might not, it might meet your expectation. It, it will fail to meet your expectations in a negative way. Yeah. 
or or perhaps in a positive way if, if you like that stuff. But right. um, it can go the other way too if people are reading your stuff and say this isn't dark enough. Right. Uh, it's just an adult <laughs> novel and it feels like a YA novel. Yeah. I've had that criticism before. And I, I don't know whether to say, well, we'll stick around. It gets darker as the character gets older <laughs> and as he gets darker. Yeah. Um, because I do try to write um, for my 13-year-old self and my 30-year-old self. I want something that both people would read and enjoy, but I definitely lean more towards um, books that are not so um, not so two-dimensional, not so black and white. I like the grays in my novels because I feel like that um, resonates a lot more with readers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, talking, talking just one more point about, uh, about the Red Rising saga. So yeah, basically when, when it came out, uh, I started seeing some reviews come in and, and most, you know, most of them have been good and, or great, but I've seen a few where, you know, he is, has used a little coarser language and people have been turned off by that because like they're letting their kids read these books and they're like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe, you know, he did that. But it's like, you know, these characters are adults now and they have kids and right. that's just kind of, it's kind of how it's going to go. <laughs> it's it going to get rough. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, you can't fault either party because you start that read with your kids thinking, um, you know, that this is the kind of book that I'm getting into. But on the other hand, you can't fault him because yeah, those characters evolve and he can't, he can't trap them in that, um, uh, juvenile state just to protect a, a small group of his readers right. um so you know at the end of the day you have to make that choice on your own yeah exactly um so where do you typically find yourself writing do you have a, do you have a home office you write in or do you do you pick different spots depending on your mood uh yes the answer to that is yes um <laughs> <laughs> uh, i have a home office i do use it pretty regularly especially when i'm doing edits i've got a standing desk that i do a lot of my edits at when i'm doing drafting i kind of use whatever i have on hand i have like half a dozen different writing machines from like old word processors from the 80s and 90s to my laptop my ipad i kind of use whatever whatever makes me feel good at the time even my journal i'll, I'll use a old pen and paper when I want to um, sketch out ideas, thoughts, outlines, themes, etc. But if I'm actually drafting and I'm not editing and I'm not uh, world building, I'm just writing chapters, mm-hmm. I tend to use Scrivener on my laptop. Uh, I use that for my structure stuff. Later on when I do edits, I switch over to Word so that my editor can uh, track changes and stuff. But um, And as far as location, I do that at my home. But um, Usually that writing occurs when my son's napping. And when he's not napping, I try to get a couple hours in in the morning by going to the gym in Park City, um, the Park City Rec Center. And I put my son in daycare for a few hours. And if I'm feeling especially um, especially good that day, I might exercise. But usually I just uh, <laughs> I put him in the daycare there and then I go and sit in the lobby and I write for uh, two to three hours. And that's kind of been our schedule for the last – year or more Um, and once my youngest son gets into school full-time that may change but for now yeah i I usually spend about three hours in the morning writing with my child in daycare um and then bring him home put him down for a nap and and usually spend another hour or two depending on how much time i have and that's kind of the extent of my writing if i can get some more in at other times and in other places i do whether Mm -hmm. it's on my phone uh on public transit or or just 
anywhere where I can't offend somebody by pulling out a device and writing. <laughs> um, but usually it's just three to five hours a day in the mornings. I gotcha. Yeah, I guess. In, and then when he gets a little older, you're going to actually maybe have to work out when you go to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. You won't maybe. have that excuse anymore. <laughs> I do work out occasionally. Uh, I like to box and uh, lift weights. And I used to do martial arts. I'd like to get back into that again. But um, but boxing is usually what I do when I have the time. But when I'm under deadline or behind a deadline, I kind of tend to skip the exercise. I still take my dogs on a walk, and we're in the mountains. So we go on hikes, and that can be as much as an hour. So I get my 10,000 steps in every day. Right. But, uh, yeah, actual exercise depends on how my writing schedule is going. Gotcha. So tell me a little bit about your writing process. Are you a are you a plotter or are you a pantser? You know, I am a huge plotter. I always have been. Even when I try to pants, I uh, I can't I can't not write down a list like of something that I'm planning to write. I tried, for example, I'm working on uh, book three of the series right now, and because I'd spent so much time plotting and outlining books one and two, and I always over plot, I over plan, uh, I over outline. I had like 15 outlines for book two. And it, for those that don't know, it took me like uh, 15 years to, to do the world building for book one. Uh, I just, I overdo things all the time. Um, and that's part of my nature. But I kind of, as I wrote book two, uh, the first draft of book two, I was discovering some of my favorite stuff was stuff that wasn't plotted very heavily. And it just kind of organically came together because I've been thinking about it so much. I just kind of let my creative self go with it. So I'm discovering that I like discovery writing to a certain extent. And I'm trying to do more of that with book three. So I'm doing a very light outline, comparatively speaking, because I still outline um, for book three. And I'm hoping to um, do a lot more discovery writing there. I've got the the main points, the tent poles for the the plot and I, the, the rest I'm trying to fill in uh, more organically so that I can enjoy the process a little bit more. And, and I don't feel so bad when I've, I have to cut out all these other things that I've plotted and don't have room for. So, I gotcha. so do, you, do you do world, build, world building first? Do you have to do character arcs first? How, how do you kind of go about your process and getting it all down on the page? Ah. Uh, it's hard to say what comes first since a lot of this happened, you know, 17 years ago. Chicken or the egg, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I think I start with the world building, okay? Um, because that is stuff that I just—it's—it's it's so compelling for me. I, I started um, a lot of my writing has roots in, um, and you, people have said this and noticed this in role-playing games. Um, I would be the dungeon master or game master for my friends when we would play Dungeons and Dragons in our teens. And, and, um, and that has led to game development and other things. Uh, like you mentioned earlier, I've got a board game company and it, it's also led to, uh, a lot of really in-depth detailed worlds and stories. And, and I think the roots for those stories has come from my role-playing games. It's also come from, other stories I've read and I've kind of latched on to certain themes or characters or things that I thought were really cool. And I said, okay, I want to put this into a story at some point, but um, a lot of it started with an idea for the world. 
Um, and, and one of the major ideas actually was, um, you know, I like magic systems, different magic systems and books. And one of the, my first thoughts were, um, in occidental culture, there are four elements. We've got wind, fire, water, earth, but in oriental cultures, there's like five elements. You've got wood and metal and water and plants and, well, I guess wood is plants, but anyway, um, and then there's also like void and there's spirit. So it depends on which culture you're looking at, but regardless, I thought, well, if you can expand the four elements that we're familiar with into five or six different elements, could you collapse them down into three elements? Mm-hmm. And that was sort of an experiment where I said, okay, well, what, let's say I have three, a culture where three elements is the base for everything. And then let's create a God for each of those elements and then let's associate each of those elements with um, something that's more metaphysical. So I've got one god for uh, for intellect uh, or the mind, and, and he's in charge of uh, air and water. And I've got a goddess who's in charge of light and fire, and, and she's in charge of uh, – she's kind of the steward over things that are spiritual or emotional. And I've got a god of uh, earth and blood and flesh, and he is a god of the body. So we've got – mind, body, spirit, we've got the elements covered and it all just kind of started to fit together as a little puzzle. And there were other things that I started adding in. Like I also wanted to explore the theme of, uh, of the dark Lord, uh, and his background and backstory and why he is who he is and, and inverting certain tropes. And so it all kind of started from that. Mm -hmm. The characters did come later, um, for sure. And most of the time when I'm writing, I discovery write my character arcs. So by the time I get to the end of a book, I say, oh, I understand what this character is actually trying to do and how he's going to evolve and what he's struggling with now that I've finished the book. So then I'll go back and tweak things a little bit. The plot, the setting, you know, the the adventure, that's usually set way ahead of time because it's dictated by the arc for the series. But having said that, um, if I have to choose between plot or character – I tend to value character development more because I don't feel like plot points are organic or authentic unless the character development matches it. Yeah. I got you. Okay. Uh, so kind of speaking about, uh, about your books, can you, can you tell us a little bit about master of sorrows? Now I've started it. I'm, I've got about, uh, I don't know, about a hundred pages in, because uh, uh-huh. I want to I get it read and reviewed by the time uh, by the time it hits in two weeks. But uh, for those who haven't started it and are kind of interested in it, can you can you give us a, I guess a little overview of what it's about and what can we what what, what we can expect? Yeah, so it's hard to summarize this. I should have a, a log line, uh, <laughs> which I do to a certain extent, but it mostly applies to the series. And that log line is: um, What if the hero? prophesied hero the the standard traditional classic fantasy hero who's an orphan who's prophesied to defeat the dark lord and all that other stuff mm-hmm. what if you take that story and you invert it and that hero as he goes to accomplish his quest and he hears these prophecies what if he discovers he's not in fact the hero what mm-hmm. if he realizes he is the incarnation of this dark Lord, or, or he's going to be the villain of this world. And how do you react to that? Um, how do you, if you believe you're the hero, but everybody else thinks you're the villain, do you become the villain? Is that sort of self-fulfilling? 
Um, if you find out you're the reincarnation of an evil God, do you justify the actions of your previous life and then return to those actions, or do you change and become better? I wanted to explore those themes, and some of those themes are there and very clearly, and some of them are touched on or hinted at, and I don't want to give away too much, but yeah. that that's kind of the core of the series. But with Master of Sorrows specifically, I wanted to keep the story um, a lot more tightly focused. Mm-hmm. And in that respect, the story focuses on a young boy who attends a, uh, an academy, a uh, magic school. But it's more of an anti-magic school where they believe magic is evil, and they hunt down magic artifacts and bring them back to their academy, and they confiscate them. They believe anyone who has magic should be killed. People who are deformed or crippled should be killed. It's a very dark setting, very uh, dystopian. And this kid grows up there, um, raised to be one of these warrior thieves that goes and steals magic artifacts. But he is also supposedly the fulfillment of this prophecy of a hero who's supposed to defeat you know, this Dark Lord. And there's a priest who takes care of him, much like traditional epic fantasy. We've got the... the um, patriarchal wizard who's mysterious, who kind of introduces him to all the th- magic and all that other stuff. So that's that's there. Those themes are there. And um, he has to choose between the life of the prophesied hero and the life of a warrior thief at the academy. And he wants both. And he also wants uh, this girl who's there, who he's enamored with. Um, but all of these things are in conflict. And um, he's naive enough that he thinks that he can have all of these things or somehow find a way to make it work. And, you know, <laughs> God help him. Cause I, I, I want him to have all of these things. And as an author, I'm trying to put him in a position where he could, but th- they're impossible goals. So the story revolves around that, uh, setting. It's just over the course of like a week, everything kind of happens. Uh, it's mostly takes place within the confines of the village and the, the dark, mysterious forest that surrounds it. Um, it's kind of a slow burn for the first third of the book. Things gradually ramp up as you get to know more about the characters, the world, the outside world, the secrets that everybody's hiding. And it has a really fast pace as you get closer towards the end. It ramps up and becomes very uh, explosive. So. I gotcha. Well, uh, and I know just having gotten into the book and so forth, I, I'm kind of a sucker when it comes to authors adding in like religious texts and uh, like little snippets from books. Me too. And so, <laughs> and so kind of, I mean, I mean, it's kind of right there at the very beginning, you have this whole, like this couple, I guess few pages of just kind of like backstory and, you know, very early days kind of, I guess what the overall story is looking at and kind of showing the path as to which the main character is going to be taking uh, and I, I just think that's really neat. Like I, I love when when you guys and I, I'm going to say you guys because you're you know you authors uh, yeah. add that in there because it just adds another element to to kind of immerse you into the book. Definitely, you know, Sanderson does that. Um, I know a lot of other authors do that. Even you could even say Robert Jordan when he starts that first chapter of Wheel of Time. He's, he always starts with the way the wind is blowing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it gives it a familiar beat. Um, Rothfuss does that with his, uh, talking about the, 
a silence in three parts and, and, and this very poetic, uh, the diction they use to kind of present the world. It doesn't have to be scriptural, mm-hmm. but that's a really good way to produce it. Or if, especially if you're talking about mythologies for your world. Right. And I, I knew from the start, I wanted to emulate that um, because I had 6,000 years of history that I built for this world with some really interesting events that really heavily influenced what's happening in the modern world. Mm-hmm. And I wanted people to understand those events um, contextually and how they influence what's happening for the main character in the quote unquote present day. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to find, I wanted to do it in a way that was organic and also enhanced the, the world building. So you could kind of see there. Well, here, here's a good example. The scriptural texts in my book, um, they're telling a story about the gods and how they exchanged gifts with one another and what the consequences of those actions were. Mm-hmm. But you get one version of those events from the scriptures of one god and another version of those events from another god's scriptures. And they're very similar, but the tone is different and their perspective is different. So it introduces the question of an unreliable narrator, which version of the events is correct which version is political and propaganda or are they both? And since you don't know, and neither does, neither does the protagonist Mm -hmm. that introduces a big question, which is important because he's trying to discover who he is and he can't figure that out unless he understands the world and the events that have happened. And how can you do that when even the old historic texts are conflicting? Right. So that's that's definitely something I tried to emulate. Um, David Eddings, I remember specifically in some of his books, one of them opened up with, um, I think it was one of the later books, the uh, the Elenium, no, the, the Tamuli um, trilogy. He's got um, characters from the series who bring in a giant troll into this um, uh, group of bureaucrats and academics who are debating the veracity of the stories that have been passed back from all of the knights who are doing all this stuff out on the frontier. And they bring it and they're like, the troll gods aren't real, blah, blah, blah. And then in come the knights with this troll. And this is still like, these are like the minutes from the meeting. And it's, it's like a story outside of the story that exposes kind of the meta of the story. And I just, I really liked that. And, and that's just one example. Sanderson does it a lot more cleanly, I think, with um, uh, with the epigraphs he uses at the beginning of his chapters in Mistborn, for example, mm-hmm. and how you gradually find out um, who is this person? Is this the dark? Is this the uh, the God King who's talking? Is this uh, is this the hero who's trying to defeat the God King? Is this um, or or later on, like here's a, here, we're reading these scriptures and that are supposed to be etched on metal, and, and what do they mean? And so there, it's a puzzle to solve, and all of these things are a fun way for the reader to have a second story that's going on in the background that gradually sheds more light on the main narrative. And I really respect that. I think it's a really great tool and I, I like to employ it in my own books. I gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, so everybody just kind of burst off the master of sorrows. It's been out kind of worldwide except for the U S uh, for quite a, quite a while. I mean, I guess about a year now, right? Yep. Yeah, around about a year. And then, uh, but it's actually going to be hitting from Blackstone uh, here in two weeks on the 25th. So definitely be on the lookout for it. But uh, on top of that, you say you also are a, a CEO of, uh, of Broomstick Monkey Games. Tell me a little bit about 
uh, about that and kind of the games that you guys design over there? Yeah. So when I was in Boston uh, doing my master's and starting uh, this book series, I was involved with the Game Makers Guild of Boston. And I was actually their curation director for a bunch of uh, ambitious um, young professionals who really liked gaming and wanted to do some game development stuff. And and I had some ideas for a board game I wanted to do. And that gradually morphed into playtesting various versions of that game, which was called Royal Strawberries. And at some point, um, we developed that game fairly well and decided to do kind of a prequel to that game that would be a much smaller budget and try to actually publish it. And that was Imperial Harvest, which we published in 2015 through Kickstarter. And at that time, I was really heavily involved in the board game scene and the games were coming out, the forums on Board Game Geek, what was going on on Kickstarter. It was really high watermark for games that were produced on Kickstarter from 2010 to 2015. Mm-hmm. But I think we were kind of hitting that um, that market right as things were getting very saturated and people had too many games that they had bought on Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So um, when our game came out, we did well. Um, but our goal was to get games out to people that were um, uh, that we didn't really make money on. We wanted them to be a really low price point, people to see the quality of the game, the components, the mechanics. And if they liked it, then they could move on to our other games, which Royal Strawberries was the next game, we're, next game we were going to publish. The reason I give you all that information is because um, we haven't published the other games yet because my fantasy series started to take off. And <laughs> so we kind of iced that. I've got um, two other partners who we've done game development with, some card games, some board games, um, really great games. Uh, but we're waiting to... Uh, until we have a little bit more time to focus on publishing them, which will probably be when I finish the fourth book of the series, we'll release a couple of games. Um, and it lets me do a little bit of cross-promotion because I'm hoping to incorporate a version of Royal Strawberries into the books uh, under the the name Bloodstones. Okay. And you can kind of see the themes and the mechanics of the game in the books. So, And it's a game I've actually designed and played. So um, unlike certain fantasy authors who will design a game sort of off the cuff for their books and then later on they'll actually create the real game and develop it. I developed the game and then sort of found a way to insert it into my books as, as I've been writing. I gotcha. Okay, that's pretty neat. Yeah, because I, uh, I know there's one, I guess, that came out after the Witcher video games came out. And then, of course, uh, you've got the new TV show, the Netflix show and everything now. Was it, was it Gwent? Is that, is that what the card game was called? I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. but um. Yeah, I don't know that one. I do know um, there's the there's a game in Patrick Rothfuss' book, which he kick-started. Tlack, I think it was called. I forget the exact name. But um, um, but yeah, there's I, there's a ton of books that have um, interesting games in them that I, I've always wanted to like play because i really love games yeah and i love the fantasy novels and it, it's kind of another way to experience that world mm-hmm. um in fact brent weeks i'm reading the lightbringer series right now and brent weeks has um the uh the game nine kings which is loosely based on magic the gathering but it has its own set of mechanics that he's to as far as i know he's planning to develop into an actual game people can play which i find super fascinating because it's actually a really big plot point in the books um, which I, I really respect. I think that's really cool. Okay. And, and that was actually, you kind of led into my next question. I was going to ask if you've read anything lately, but, uh, besides, I guess the Lightbringer series, I mean, are there any 
authors or books you'd recommend to the audience? You know, if you're looking for, so my book, Master of Sorrows, the, the, the Silent God series, it uh, toys with the notion of reading the perspective of the hero who, depending on your own perspective within the novel, um, you could characterize that character as the villain. And I'm not the only person who's trying to play with this theme. Christopher Rocchio is a science fiction writer, a uh, brilliant gentleman, uh, very fantastic. Um, the language he uses in his, in his stories is fantastic. Um, superb writer. And he has the Sun Eater series, which I really loved. Um, I've read the first two books, and he's got the third one, Demon in White, coming out soon. But the first book is Empire of Silence, and he plays with that theme as well with his character, Hadrian Marlowe. Um, but it's a science fiction story, and so it's um, it's a different, slightly different genre, but very <laughs> overlapping, um, similar feel, similar vibe. Uh, so if, if people like that sort of story, even Patrick Rothfuss to a certain extent, that, that slow burn and the character who is maybe not, um, who, who might be responsible for the ills of his world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a similar theme that we're all kind of playing with. So that's, that's a recommendation. Ed McDonald's, um, Ravenmark trilogy. Um, I, I really liked, um, of course I'm always a fan of Sanderson. So anything he produces is pretty much always getting a, I'm not the only one in that in that uh, corner, though. Anything he writes seems to turn to gold. So right, right. Um, yeah, yeah. I have to agree on uh, on on uh, Ed McDonald's Raven's Mark series. That uh, is a fantastic little low fantasy grimdark. Uh, it was, trilogy. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, I've actually read Empire of Silence. Um, I read it. I guess it was toward the end of last year. Uh, it was it was fantastic. It, it kind of. It still kind of gave me the feeling of uh, of the Red Rising series, just with like the mythology kind of aspects mm-hmm. to it. Uh, but yeah, his his prose is gorgeous. <laughs> it is. It's really. Um, it, it was I'm really almost, surprising. Yeah, him and Rothfuss. When I read their books, I'm envious of their use of the language. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I read their stuff and I say, I know these words. I know I can create these sentences, but. I don't. When I sit down and write, they don't come out this way. Right. It would take me a long time to write a book this way. I tend to lean more towards Sanderson's very approachable um, writing. I try to be invisible as far as the, an author, mm-hmm. but I really respect people who can turn turn a good phrase and not have it feel uh, like purple prose. And I think Rocchio is a really good example of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, you know, it's and it feels like it's like every other sentence, <laughs> like it just yeah. it's just constant. Yeah. And there's, I just feel like there's a few writers out there that just can just put a pen to page and do that constantly. I mean, Mark Lawrence is one. Anna Smith Spark was one when she, yeah. uh, with her yeah. uh, uh, Empires of Dust uh, series, and but I mean, it, it's just kind of amazing where you know, not saying that everybody else is vanilla, but just saying that you can have these authors that. I'm like, I could never write like that. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like, I, I don't even, I, I don't talk like that. I don't feel like I could, and I definitely can't write like that. So, you know, and, and when I do talk like that, I feel like an ass because I'm like, <laughs> you know, people don't, <laughs> people criticize you if you, if you talk like that. Right. And maybe, you know, anyway, uh, but yeah, you're right. These, these people are phenomenally talented and I, it's something I really respect. Maybe if I wrote a book in first person, I might attempt 
something a little more in that style, but who knows? Right. I gotcha. Yeah. You feel like you should kind of be holding a Chianti glass and have a, have an ascot <laughs> and start talking to everybody and be like, you know, hello. And everybody's like, all right, you, you don't belong here. Bye. <laughs> Yeah, I've already got the stigma of saying I graduated from Harvard, and I don't want to add to that any more than than I have to. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, well, well, great. Yeah, there's some fantastic recommendations, and uh, and I definitely agree with you on all of the above. Um, but yeah, but but everybody, uh, like I said, Master of Sorrows comes out in two weeks. Uh, he's Justin's currently. You said you just started on book three. Yeah, I finished the second, the first draft of the second book, which is uh, almost twice as long as the first. Woo. Yeah, it's a big, chunky monster. Um, but I'm I'm pretty happy with uh, the first draft, and I'm sure I'll be even happier with the final draft when I finish edits, uh, which I should be getting in the next week or two. So while I wait on those, I've started drafting uh, book three. So Master of Sorrows is book one of the Silent Gods, Master Artificer which will come out around this time next year is the second book in the series. Master of the Fallen is the third book, which I'm starting to draft right now. Okay. So you're probably looking at a, at a February release for the consecutive books. That's the plan. And and there's a chance I might do some eBooks, some small like novella, short story stuff in between books okay. for people that, uh, want to get a little bit more of a glimpse of some of the minor characters that don't have their paths crossed with the main character so much. Yeah. Uh, but that's something I'm talking about with my agent right now and it's gotten some positive uh, feedback. So we'll, we'll see, uh, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Those are, those are never, uh, never frowned upon at least uh, in the reader world. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, we always yeah. like to learn more about characters. So uh, that'd be, that'd be awesome. So, well guys, uh, you can find Justin on Twitter at Justin underscore T underscore call. You can also find him on Instagram at the same, uh, screen. It's Justin underscore T underscore call. Uh, Although also, I think that one's hyphenated. I think it's Justin hyphen T. I saw underscore. So if it's hyphen, look, look for him in right. both ways. Just type in Justin call. I'm sure you'll find him. <laughs> um, and you can also find him on Facebook. Uh, it's justin.travis.call. Uh, and then he's got his website, justintcall.com. But guys, like I said, and we've reiterated a couple of times, Master of Sorrows hits on the 25th of February. So 14 days, at least from today's date, which we're recording this. And, uh, and yeah, just check it out. Uh, should be having a review up on my blog, probably right before, right around release date. And, uh, and yeah, we're looking forward to master artificer next year and, yeah. uh, maybe some short stories in the, in the world. That'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. Thanks David. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on and, uh, let's definitely do this again. Maybe, uh, maybe around the release of book two, that'd be pretty sweet. <laughs> That would be fantastic. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Absolutely. Have a great rest of your week. You too. Right. Bye. Hope you guys enjoyed my chat with Justin Travis Call. Look for Master of Sorrows to be released on February 25th. Stay tuned this weekend when I chat with author Tim Levin about his upcoming novel, Eden. Also, next week, I'll be chatting with author Tim Meyer about his upcoming novel in April called Dead Daughters. I actually just finished it a couple of weeks ago. It's a fantastic thriller novel, kind of in the vein of C.J. Tudor uh, and, and a little bit in the horror vein of Keelan Patrick Burke. So it's definitely one to look out for. But guys, just thanks again for tuning in and continue to come back. Thanks. <laughs>